You're listening to a sermon from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas. Get to know Grace Church better by visiting our website at www.gracechurchfrisco.org. Today's speaker is Pastor Rob Tumbrella. And my name is Rob. I don't think I mentioned my name earlier. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. I want to say thanks for coming. Welcome. If this is your very first time, we're actually going to uh, conclude what's been a four-part series on family dysfunction. So you made, you made it in just as we're on our way out here uh, talking about uh, how our families are, are broken. Our families have dysfunction that's owing to sin and, and the brokenness that sin uh, causes. And I hope that as we've, as we've journeyed along and we've seen this in the life of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and we're going to look at Joseph today, I hope that we've seen that God uses the most unlikely and the most broken people for his glory. Uh, arguably the most awkward and, and broken and backwards family you can imagine God chooses and uses and works through redemption. And he can use anybody. And so we, we, we try to say every single week that through the cross, anyone can have a new start. Anyone can, have a, can be a new creation in Christ. He reverses the effects of brokenness. He reverses the effects of, of what we've come from and what we've contributed to because we all come from broken and, and messed up families. And through the cross, he sets in this reversal, this, this rewriting of a new story. He gives us a new name. He gives us a new start. But we've also seen, and we'll see today, that when Christ invades our lives and starts that that new process by his spirit of rewriting a new story in us, it is hard and it is difficult and it involves us and it requires an ongoing and intense commitment to forgiveness. That's what we're talking about today, forgiving family and forgiving others around us that that aren't family. And so we are in Genesis chapter 50 and we're going to look at just a handful of verses. I'm going to give you the backstory, but we're really just going to look at a handful of verses, 15 through 21. It's the last chapter in the book of Genesis. It's on page 26 in the Bible, somewhere around you. It's, there's a paperback version. You can get that. Uh, there's a text number up there. If you want a question discussed at the podcast, just text uh, a, any question that you have to that number. We'll discuss that this uh, this week on the podcast. While you're turning there, let me pray one more time and invite the Holy Spirit's help. Spirit of God, we ask for your encouragement. We ask for your clarity. We open up our hearts to you, and we ask that you speak to us through your word. Your word is life. Your your word brings faith. And so we invite your help here today. We are open to you. Speak to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so if if you're in in Genesis 50 on your device or in, in your Bible, look at verse 15. And I'm going to just read verse 15 and then give you the backstory. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So if you are brand new to this series or you're brand new to the Bible, I'm going to catch you up on who Joseph is. Uh, who his brothers are, and why they're so concerned that Joseph is going to pay them back for all the evil that they have done to him. Who's Joseph, and what's this evil that they have done to him? 
So we've been in a series talking about Abraham. God starts a new story with this guy, Abraham, just picks this guy and works through a very broken vessel. And then he works through his son, Isaac, and and gives a promise to him, gives a covenant promise to both of these men. And then we saw last week that God works through Isaac's son, Jacob. Jacob is a scoundrel. He's a snake. He's a cheat. He's a runaway. And uh, God catches up with him and changes his name to Israel. And this guy, Jacob, Israel, i.e. Israel, has 11 sons, and Joseph is the youngest of these sons. And earlier on, chapters back, before we get to Genesis 50, you don't have to turn there, I'm just going to kind of read some sections for you. Uh, It says this, that Joseph, when he was 17 years old, he was pastoring the flock with his brothers. Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Joseph kind of told on them. And these guys were not good guys, and so they doubtless had plenty of stuff that Joseph could go tell his dad about. It says, uh, now Israel, that's Jacob, Israel, that's his name change now, Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons. Does that sound familiar? So, Uh, Jacob comes by that honestly. He saw that modeled in his own dad, who uh, we talked about several weeks ago, uh, demonstrated favoritism, and it caused dysfunction in their family. Well, uh, on this one, uh, Israel has not really learned from that mistake, and he loves Joseph more than any of the other sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. You've heard about this robe. It's the Technicolor dream coat. So he makes this Technicolor dream coat for his son. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all of his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. They despise him. We talked about how favoritism sows that in, sows that discord into despising uh, and and competition, and comparison, and, and that's what's going on among these brothers who just really despise him because he's got this amazing, very expensive article of clothing. He's the favored son, and, and more than that, Joseph, uh, kind of with a lack of discretion, tells his brothers this dream that he has. He says, hey guys, listen up. Behold, I had this dream We were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright, and your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. (laughs) So you can imagine what these guys uh, think about that. His brother said to him, are you indeed to reign over us, or are are you going to rule over us? And so they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. I mean, So Joseph doesn't help the situation out by telling him a couple of dreams that he has. So one day they're out working, and and Joseph uh, is is going their way. They kind of leave him behind, and Israel says, go out to your brothers. And so he goes, and they see him from afar, and it says they conspired against him to kill him. This is how bad it got. Like they want to murder their brother now. And they said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. 
Like, let's see what happens with his dreams when he's a dead man. And we throw him in this pit. He starves to death. They conspire murder. And this is not outside of their ability to do this. Uh, We are told before this episode happens in Genesis that Simeon and Levi, two of Israel's sons, plotted a gruesome murder of the Hivites when a couple of their, or one of their guys, raped their sister Dinah and, and then tried to make it right by getting married. By like, let's get, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have done that, but I loved her so much and I want to marry her. And they said, okay, well, we can, we can do this. How about, we're the people of the circumcision. How about all, you know, your tribe, you guys go ahead and get circumcised and we'll arrange a marriage between Dinah and, and this Hivite prince. And they said, okay. And uh, they do it. Uh, and it says, while they were still sore, Simeon and Levi, goes, they go in and they just kill the whole group, the whole lot of them, murdered them. So this is, this hor- this is a horrible story. And these guys were horrible guys. And they have, they have uh, the ability to, to plot things out like this. And, and uh, so they're going to kill them. It says, but when Reuben heard it, he rescued him. This is a, one of their brothers, rescued them out of their hands, saying, let's not take his life. And Reuben said, shed no blood. Throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him that he may rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So he's, he's trying to rescue him. Uh, so when Joseph came to his brothers, he's got his, his Technicolor dream coat on. Uh, they strip him of his robe uh, uh, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they threw him into the pit. And the pit's empty, and there's no water in it. And it says, the next verse says, then they sat down to eat. How horrible is that? Like, they're, they're going to see that their brother just starves to death in this pit. They sit down, <clears throat> and they have a meal together. And while they're eating, they look up, and they see this caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels and all their stuff on their way to Egypt. And Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Let's sell him instead to the Ishmaelites. Let's make some money off of him. And uh, since he is our our brother, our own flesh, let's not kill him, let's, let's sell him. And his brothers listened to him and said, this is a good idea. So the Midianites traders came by, they drew up Joseph, lifted him out of the pit, and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. That's, that's all that they demanded of the Midianite traders. 20 shekels of silver. I think in today's dollars, it's like 10 bucks. They took Joseph to Egypt from there. So they, they sold him. They human trafficked him sold him off. And there, and there, there he goes. He's, he's going off to, to Egypt now. And then to conceal the whole thing, they took Joseph's robe and they slaughtered a goat, dipped the robe in the blood, and sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, this we found. Please identify whether it's your son's robe or not. Like, okay, like, no duh. It's his robe. And he identified it, and he said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. 
Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. So they sell him off. They lie to their father. They deceive their dad. They're, they're, they, may, they learn that from their dad. Their dad was a, a deceiver in the same way as they are. And Jacob, i.e. Israel, is assuming Joseph's dead. Fierce animal has devoured him. Are you guys with me so far? Okay, good. Joseph is now uh, the property of the Midianites, and they sell him to a guy named Potiphar, who is a captain of the Egyptian government. So now he's way over here in Egypt. So if you're looking at this map, here's like Canaan. Egypt is, I'm sorry, Egypt is way over here if you're looking this way. <laughs> it's right there. And, uh, and Potiphar is this kind of hot shot in the Egyptian government. And he starts working for Potiphar. He just starts jumping into what he's supposed to be doing as a slave now. And, uh, and, and how much bitterness is going on in his heart and his life, estranged from his father, uh, rejected by his brothers, and now a slave. But it says that the Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man. And he was in the house of his Egyptian master. And his master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. And Joseph found favor in his sight, and made him the overseer of his house, and put him in charge of all that he had. So it's just a statement that God's grace is with Joseph, just like God's grace was with his father and his father and his father. He's right there helping him out. And uh, in the middle of all of this, Joseph experiences amazing temptation from Potiphar's wife, who simply and regularly asks uh, Joseph to be intimate with her and have sex with her. And day after day, he refuses her uh, advances. And out of fear of the Lord, refuses uh, all of her advances until, until the day where uh, she's really trying to get at him and, uh, and he runs away and leaves his cloak, theme in the Bible, uh, leaves his like garment with her and she frames him. She says, I've had it with this guy. And she falsely accuses him of rape and uh, Joseph's master, Potiphar, imprisons him, takes him, throws him in prison, and that's where, that's where he ends up for years. He en ends up for years in prison because he was falsely accused and framed, totally innocent, didn't do anything wrong, out of fear of God, just doing the best he could under an already dark circumstance, and, and he ends up in prison. Uh, it says, uh, Joseph's master took him, put him in prison, where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison, but the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and grace and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the other prisoners who were in the prison. And whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. So everywhere he goes, the favor of God is with him and he succeeds. And the keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did... The Lord made it succeed. While he is in prison, he has dreams. And, um, and he is able to interpret dreams. And there's these two individuals that are there. There's a cupbearer and there's a baker. And they both have dreams. And, uh, and he tells them what their, what their dreams are rather matter-of-factly. 
And um, it turns out that it says that he restored the chief cupbearer to his position. This is Pharaoh. And, and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted them. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph but forgot him. And so in the middle of this, he interprets two people's dreams. And they both come true exactly how Joseph said they were going to come true. The chief cupbearer goes back to working for Pharaoh, the king of all of Egypt, but he completely forgets about Joseph. So now he's, he's forgotten about in all of this. So years go by. Two years go, go by, and a famine is spread over all the land. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, sorry. Let me back up just a little bit. Uh, two years goes by, and Pharaoh himself has a nightmare dream. So now... God inflicts Pharaoh with a dream, and nobody in his court can interpret it. And then the cupbearer remembers, wait a second, I know a guy. I got a guy. I remember a guy now who interpreted my dream, and I think he can interpret your dream. So he comes, and he interprets the dream and says, basically, these two dreams that you're having is essentially you're going to have famine in the land of Egypt for seven years, and then there's going to be seven years of plentiful. And what you need to do is really save up. Uh, I'm sorry, you're going to have, I'm confusing it. You're going to have bounty for seven years and then famine. So you need to save up in the seven years of bounty, and that's going to get you through the next seven years. And, uh, and Pharaoh is so impressed with Joseph. He says, since God has shown you all of this, there's none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. As, only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I've set you over all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck. Even gave him a new name. So Joseph's got this like Egyptian name and it's this rags to riches story just like that. He goes from a prisoner to the head over all of Egypt. Only Pharaoh is greater than Joseph at this at this point. So the inter interpretation that Joseph gives comes true. Uh, at some point, there's famine over all the land, and Joseph opened up all the storehouses because he, he saved it all up and sold all that they had to people around the, the area. And uh, word gets to Canaan among uh, Israel, his tribe, and, and all the brothers and the famine is so severe, they've got to go to Egypt now and get grain. And Jacob says, go to Israel, go get grain, otherwise we're going to die. So they show up. If you guys are with me so far, the brothers show up to Egypt now. And Joseph, this is years later, like 15 years later, and Joseph is the head over all of that. And he assumes that his, his brothers have not changed at all. And so he decides to test them. He calls them into his court and he tests his brothers and accuses them of being spies, coming in to spy out the land. And they say, no, 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 we're not spies at all. We promise we're not spies. And so what Joseph does, he says, here's what I want you to do to, to prove that you're not spies. Bring me your youngest brother to prove it. And now this is sort of his biological brothers, the youngest of the, the bunch, Benjamin the son of his mother. And so he says, here's how I'll know that you're not spies. Bring the youngest. 
And uh, they, they, they're like, I, I don't know how uh, Jacob's going to respond to that. They go back home uh, to, to, the, to their land, and Jacob is not favorable of this. He says, no way, I'm not going to let you do that. But after they run out of grain, they finally convince him, okay, we'll, we'll take Benjamin. And Reuben says something crazy like, hey, just kill my own sons if I don't bring back Benjamin. Like Jacob's like, okay, like kill my two grandsons. To, I mean, it's just bizarre. So these guys, they're like, we promise, we promise we'll bring them back to you. And, uh, and you start to see this, this humility about the brothers. They start to see that all of their crimes are catching up to them. All their conniving is catching up to them. Uh, they bring Benjamin back to Joseph. And Joseph tests them again. Now, this isn't a, a lesson in this is how you reconcile relationships by testing them and that kind of thing. This is the second time Joseph says, I'm going to test you again. This time he plants a cup in the bag of his brother Benjamin and accuses him of stealing it. And these guys are like, no. The brothers are like, no, we didn't do it. We promise. Uh, there's no way Benjamin did that. And, and then there's this inner dialogue between them saying, We're, we've, see, God's caught up to us. This is what we did to our brother, uh, Joseph. And now it's all catching up to us now. It's all coming back onto us. Well, Joseph sees they have changed. There's, there's, these are different. These guys are different than before. And he can't control himself any longer. He reveals that he is Joseph. He's crying. He's weeping. He says, I'm your brother Joseph. And they're like, what? They're shocked. Uh, there's no way you're Joseph. Uh, I'm the, the one you sold uh, to Egypt years and years ago. And he says this, don't be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me. For God sent me before you to preserve life. He's got a perspective that is shocking. Like God sent me here through your evil to preserve life. He says, for the famine has been in the land these two years, and they're at five years more. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but it was God. He's made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his houses and ruler over the land of Egypt. They can't believe this. And so he says, go back and tell my father. They ask, is he well? They said, he is well. They go back Tell dad what's happened to me and have him come here for safety, protection. This is where you're supposed to be. You're supposed to be with me now. They go back and they say, hey, dad, guess what? You're never going to believe it. Remember us telling you about the guy who was over all the land? It turns out that's Joseph. And by the way, we, sold, we, we lied to you. We sold him off. It wasn't a goat. I mean, it wasn't, you know, some fierce animal that... So they got some explaining to do to dad. Uh, and, and he can't hardly believe it. I mean, God has to come to Jacob and say, go to Egypt. This is true. This is real. And Jacob says, I'm, I'm going to go. So he goes to, he goes to Egypt. And, uh, and he goes to Egypt and, and he sees... Joseph, he sees Joseph's sons. He sees all that God has done. And that's kind of the last that we see of Joseph. And then Joseph, I'm sorry, 
That's the last we see of Jacob. You guys with me? It's hard with the names. My wife said, you, you, sometimes you mix up the names. Sorry about that. Je- so that's the last we see of Jacob. Jacob ends up in, jo- in, is in Egypt, and that's where he dies. So he dies in Egypt, okay? And the brothers now are really worried about what's going to happen, and that's where we are in, uh, in verse 16. So if you're right there in Genesis 50, you guys with me, right? Okay. That was, well, that was long. That took me a little longer than I thought it was going to take me. Okay. So when the central figure in the family dies, that can cause a little bit of consternation. What's actually going to happen now that Jacob's dad is no more? So they sent a message to Joseph. These are the brothers in verse 16 saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgressions of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. That's an that's a, a awkward way to apologize. And, and, you know, Jacob actually never said that, but they're, they're going to say that dad said this. And now please forgive the transgressions of the servants of the God of your father. And it says, And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. And his brothers also came and fell down before him. And they said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear. For am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and he spoke kindly to them. I just want you to see that Joseph has a perspective there that helps us when we're thinking about the challenge in front of us in forgiving other people around us, which is so much of the challenge of family life. It's the challenge of work life. The challenge of the Christian life is the ongoing commitment to forgiveness. And when we see what Joseph is saying here, we see a window into the perspective of what time has given to him. Time doesn't heal all things, but time can give you a perspective. Time that he spent in prison, time where he had a a chance to see all that God had done with him and through the journey of being rejected by his family and sold into slavery and tempted and framed and forgotten about, and then to rise to this place of prominence has given him a perspective and as, as we kind of wrap up this series, as we wrap up this message, I, I wonder if we can grab hold of these three things that Joseph is aware of. Number one, Joseph is aware that God is just. How is he able to forgive his brothers? How is he able to forgive? With the awareness that God is just. Look at verse 19. Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? He can remember the promise that God made to him all those years ago. And it seemed so unlikely to ever take place. And yet it all came to pass exactly how God said it was going to happen. Exactly how the dream came to him with all the exactness happened. Just like God said it was. And this perspective helps him understand that God is just. I'm not in the place of God. And there's a real freedom and a, a, a sense of peace and a sense of joy that can come upon us when we realize that we're not in the place of God, that God 
is on his throne and he is just and I'm not God. And so much of our anxiety and frustration come when we are afraid that God hasn't seen. We've been sold into something. We've been rejected. We've spent years in a situation, maybe a very tense family situation. And the frustration can be, does God see me? Does God see what I've been through? Does God see the pain? Does God see what's happened to me? And if he does see, will he make it right? I think those two questions haunt us. Does he see? I mean, does he really see? Like I see. And if he sees, is he going to make it right? Is he going to do something to fix it in my family, in my life? Well, we're given these amazing promises that he does see. And he will make it right. Romans says this. Beloved, never take revenge yourselves, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. I will repay. I'm, I'm the one who sees. I'm the one who knows. I'm the one who makes everything right. He says later in Romans, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God so then each of us will give an account of himself to God that that reality that each person must and will stand before God and give an account of themselves to God uh it's 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 a heavy truth it's a vertical truth, but it, it just levels out some of the challenges that we experience at a horizontal, relational level when we realize that I'm going to give an account of myself to God and every single person around me will as well. Every single person, nothing's going to get missed. Nothing gets pushed under the rug like it sometimes does in our families not before the eyes of God, not before what he sees. Nothing gets dismissed. Uh, Every single person will bow the knee. Every person will stand before God and give an account of their lives. Nothing will be forgotten about. God knows and he sees and he will make everything right. And I know that that can sound as unlikely as it seemed to uh, the brothers when they saw Joseph being carted off to Egypt. Like, that seems so unlikely in this kind of modern, contemporary world. Just the reality that Jesus is going to return and that we will stand before Jesus. Uh, That can sound so unlikely because, gosh, that sounds kind of a little bit strange. And we're maybe even a little bit embarrassed by that reality. But that is going to happen. That is a promise from the Bible, that Christ is returning and we will all stand before him and he will make everything right. And he is just and sees all and knows all. And that should, that should affect how we're viewing what's happening around us. First Peter says this, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you. I know sometimes we think, gosh, this is such a slow return that Christ is, is doing. But it, we're not to consider that slow. We're, consi- we're to consider that patient. 
he is being patient, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Count it the patience of God that Christ has not returned today, where we would all stand before him. And all these squabbles and all these challenges and all this evil that we are so worried does God see and know, we have to give an account before God. And, and through the cross, we can know that our sins are forgiven. And, uh, but, but apart from, from the cross, it is a scary place to be before God and, uh, and, and to know that your sins are not forgiven. So I appeal to you to turn and repent and trust in Jesus so that that day is a day of joy and not a day of terror. Because Jesus will return. Jesus says, not one jot or tittle shall, shall pass away until all is fulfilled. Every single promise is going to come true. I know that can feel unlikely. Felt unlikely to the brothers. Just seemed like it was never going to happen. And yet, we see chapters later, there they are, bowing before their brother. Just like God said was going to happen. It's a sure thing. I, I grew up in the 80s. I'm a product of the 80s. I love the movie Hoosiers. Anybody with me? It's basketball season. Come on, give me an amen for the Hoosiers. And, um, and, and, and in the movie Hoosiers, there's a star basketball player, Jimmy Chitwood. You guys remember Jimmy? What's Jimmy do every time Jimmy gets the ball? Jimmy always makes the basket. So it gets to the very end of the movie uh, of Hoosiers. And Gene Hackman wants to do what a lot of coaches do. That he wants to do a trick play at the end of the, the game. And he calls for this, this trick play because everybody knows it's going to go to Jimmy. And the players go, oh, if you remember. And they're like, that's not a good play. And, they, and he looks over at Jimmy and Jimmy says, I'll make it. Give me the ball and I'll make it. And so, uh, so they, he abandons the trick play and gives it to Jimmy. And what does Jimmy do? Jimmy makes it, because that's what Jimmy does. When Jimmy gets the ball, he always makes it. He's a sure thing. And, uh, and listen, listen, this is a sure thing. Jesus is going to return. There's no, there are no knees out there in, in, in some outside, off the map, off the grid, terrorist cell whose knees will not bow and whose tongues will not confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And there is nothing that's going on at your work that God doesn't know about. There's nothing happening in your body that God is not fully aware of. There's nothing that's going to happen in your future that God does not know. And, uh, and his promises are for us in the midst of all of those questions. He's a sure thing and he does not drop the ball. He doesn't fumble it. And he always makes the shot. So... Um, so he's just. Number two, uh, he's sovereign over evil. Do you see that in verse 20? As for you, you meant evil against me. And it's important that we recognize the evil that these guys did against Joseph because we can't get to forgiveness unless we recognize the evil that's been done to us. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So Joseph sold to Potiphar. That was evil. And yet, God intended it for good. His master saw the Lord, gives him favor and success in his hand. Joseph is sent to prison. That's evil. But the Lord intended it for good. The Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. Joseph's forgotten about by the cupbearer. That was evil. But then the cupbearer remembers him. 
uh, just out of the blue, remembers. And so you see both of these things happening. You see human responsibility, and you see the sovereignty of God over human responsibility, even evil acts that these guys are doing and are responsible for, responsible before the Lord for. And God is yet sovereign over all of that. Now, the clearest place that we see this is, is at the cross. So when Peter stands up after they heal somebody and he preaches the message of the cross, we see both of these realities at the same time. Here's what Peter says. He says, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered and denied in the presence of Pilate when he decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to, murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And by his name and by faith in his name, he made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance as did all the rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. So it's human responsibility, even evil that's being taken, that, that humans are doing, and yet God is sovereignly acting in and through and over all of that. And, and then he says, therefore you're responsible to repent, you're, to repent of your evil. For what you did. You nailed the author of life to the cross. Therefore repent. And turn back that your sins may be blotted out. And that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. So you've got this, this thing that's happening. People meaning something for evil. And yet God superintending even those actions. And meaning it for good. I know that's sort of swimming in the deep end of the pool. But those are two realities that the Bible holds to, and you've got to hold that tension there and not deny one to affirm the other. Uh, Joseph doesn't, and we shouldn't in, in our lives. Uh, lastly, look at, verse, look at verse 21. God is kind. God is just. God is sovereign, and God is kind. Joseph's aware of his kindness. It helps him to, to forgive his brothers even with his dad, his dad now dead. Verse 21 says, So do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and he spoke kindly to them. Where's Joseph drawing from this kindness? He's drawing from this kindness because he's aware of the kindness of God in his life. Joseph wasn't perfect either. Joseph was a sinner too. Joseph probably bragged and told on his brothers and wore around his technicolor dream coat to his bros and told him all his dreams and all that kind of stuff. And yet in the midst of all of Joseph's brokenness, it's the kindness of God that allows him to be kind. And kind is not a, like sort of this wimpy word. It's the power of God. It, it's, it's the message of the gospel. It's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. It, you ever notice that? It's not, it's not the, the, the law of God, the wrath of God can wake us up. 
But it's the kindness of God and the love of God and the grace of God shown on the cross that leads us to repentance. God's been kind to his grandfather and his father and his father's father, and he's been kind to him. We read about this in the New Testament. We ourselves were once foolish. We were disobedient. We were led astray. We were slaves to various passions and pleasures. We were passing our days in malice and envy and hating one another and being hated by one another. But when the goodness and the loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, when it appeared, where did it appear? It appeared at the cross. When God demonstrated his love on the cross and then opened up our eyes to see it, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his mercy by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. That's new life that he gives to us when he opened up our eyes to see the kindness of God demonstrated for us, sinners and cheats and runners at the cross and giving us this this new life and allowing us to forgive people. You guys have heard of this lady, Corey Ten Boom. She was a Christian Jew who wrote the book, The Hiding Place, about her family being separated by Nazis. And, uh, and, and she, she's liberated, and she goes kind of on a speaking circuit uh, several years after she gets out of, out of prison. And uh, Eric Metaxas, in his book, Seven Women and Their Extraordinary Lives, says this, Corey herself was put to the test of forgiving people in 1947 while speaking in Munich, in Munich church on the, on the topic of this verse in Micah 5 that says, you will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. And at the close of the service, a balding man in a gray overcoat stepped forward to greet her. Corey froze. She knew this man well. He'd been one of the most vicious guards at Ravensbrook, one who had mocked the women prisoners as they showered. It came back with a rush, she wrote. The huge room with its harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor, the shame of walking naked past this man. And now he was pushing his hand out to shake hers and saying, A fine message, Fraulein. How good it is to know that, as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. And I, who had spoken so glibly of forgiveness, fumbled in my pocketbook rather than take that hand. He would not remember me, of course. How could he remember one prisoner among those thousands of women? But I remembered him and the leather crop swinging from his belt. I was face to face with one of my captors, and my blood seemed to freeze. You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk, he was saying. I was a guard there, but since that time, he went on, I have become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things that I did there. But I would like to hear it from your lips as well. And again, the hand came out. Will you forgive me? And I stood there. I whose sins had again and again to be forgiven. And I could not forgive. 
Betsy had died in that place. Betsy is her sister. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? The soldier stood there expectantly, waiting for Corey to shake his hand. She wrestled with the most difficult thing I had ever had to do, for I had to do it. I knew that. The message that God forgives has a condition that we forgive those who have injured us. And standing there before the former SS man, Corey remembered that forgiveness is an act of the will, not an emotion. Jesus, help me, she prayed. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. So Corey thrust out her hand. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder and raced down my arm and sprang into our joined hands. And then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried with all my heart. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I'd never known God's love so intensely as I did then. But even so, I realized it was not my love. I had tried and did not have the power. It was the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the forgiveness that comes through Christ and the washing of regeneration and the new life that he offers to us. We're going to go ahead and close this service by taking uh, communion together. And we are going to really uh, acknowledge that Jesus forgives our debts through the cross and gives us an awesome opportunity to forgive those around us, to forgive our debtors. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Grace Church. To receive future messages, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or listen online by visiting our website at gracechurchfrisco.org.